Okay, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Thanks, Nick. Please keep that open and let's pray as we come to God's word together, shall we? Uh, Father, thank you that you're our God. You're good to us. You give us your word. You speak things that we may not always be as hurt and for us. And we pray indeed you'd work in our hearts now as we sit before you. Would you speak to us and be uh, help to me to speak clearly and usefully for us all? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want fabulous, that is my simple request, everything fabulous, bigger and better and best, I want something inspiring to help me get along, I need a little fabulous, is that so wrong? I need, I need, I need. If you don't recognise these words, <laughs> there's hurt. They came from Sharpe Evans sitting there in front. High School Musical 2, classic piece of, a, well, of drama. Uh, hilarious, outrageous words, absolutely, and yet they neatly capture the spirit of discontentment that pervades our world and our Australian culture as well, where we want our wealth to be wealthier, we want our health to be healthier, we want our sex to be sexier. And in rejection, in easy rejection of God, the Father who made us, of God, the Son who saved us, of God, the Holy Spirit who sustains us, well, we turn our back and our nation has largely embraced a brand new view, a new way of thinking about these things that's, that's very well co collected together in something called the Acquisitor's Creed. The Acquisitor's Creed or the Greed Creed. It goes like this. Next screen, please. It goes like this, I believe in gold, treasure almighty, basis of fortune on earth, and in greedy might, the only force that works, which was conceived by primeval folk, born of emergent need, refined in aggressive climate, was modified, strengthened, polished, and defended like hell. And a third way arose in its tread. It fermented like leaven, and spreadeth throughout the land, that all should come to judge a bloke by his bread. I believe in owning shares. The lowly plastic crutch, the extension of credit, the retention of gain, the reclamation of debt, and in life without fasting. Now, generalizations like this, they're a blunt instrument. They feel like a gross overstatement. And yet, at the same time, it also feels uncomfortably accurate, doesn't it? There's an accepted norm that just kind of floats around that, well, that's what we're supposed to do each day is we're supposed to get up and well, jealously guard what we have and pursue more. Is it just the water we swim in now? Is it, is it the air we breathe? Has greed become normalised in our Australian way of life such that we just barely notice it as an issue anymore? How likely. Uh, one commentator on this, Brian Rosner, uh, describes Australians quite well when he says this, to most people, greed is hardly a sin. 
let alone a deadly one. Economists recommend it, politicians rely on it, and celebrities flaunt it. Who wants to be a millionaire? Well, it's a rhetorical question now, isn't it? Of course the answer is yes, it's everyone. 3,000 years ago in our Bibles, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, we find this. The teacher wrote, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And we go, really? Surely there's at least someone. But at the same time, we all kind of agree with Simpson's richest man, Montgomery Burns, don't we? When he declared, I'd trade it all for a little more. And the result being that Australian economy is now wired, designed and even measured specifically to urge each citizen to want more, to purchase more in a never-ending cycle of material possession and pursuit after just, well, a little bit more. And it's totally inequitable. And it's playing havoc with our environment where we Australians now, declared this week, are officially responsible for more extinct mammals than any other continent as we have brought economic progress into this land in just over 200 years. But, but it's progress. And hey, progress is good, isn't it? Progress. And we've been doing it long enough that it's just normal. And who wants to be abnormal? Well, not I. However, the canaries down the mine shaft with us have stopped singing. And the problem is beginning to be noticed. The environmental alarm bells, yes, they're ringing very loudly. And the sociologists around us and commentators, they're noting a problem. However, the solutions they're offering, well, they don't attempt to address that root problem of greed, but they have become alarmed at least by the symptoms and the consequences that are being noticed. Uh, back in 2005, it seems a long time ago now, Australian Clive Hamilton, not a Christian guy, he wrote a book called Affluenza that was particularly on this point. And unlike The Economist's, Clive didn't describe our Australian desire for more and more as a wonderful for economic stimulus. No, he labelled it a disease. Here's his definition. He called it affluenza. Let's see if you recognise these symptoms. Number one, the bloated, sluggish and unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. Two, an epidemic of stress, overwork, Waste and indebtedness caused by dogged pursuit of the Australian dream. Three, an unsustainable addiction to economic growth. 17 years ago. And so we should wonder where are we at now and we should wonder, have we been infected like everyone else? Have Australian Christians also have we accepted greed as normal? And are we here at Bulli Anglican also suffering the effects of affluenza? I know I struggle with this. I do fine overnight when I'm asleep. But in the morning, I get up, go to the letterbox, and there's a great big new pile of brochures of all the things I don't have yet that I'd really possibly like. And I put them down and turn on the phone and email and then in the feed, 
all these things that I could want. So I'll put that down and go for a walk. And there's all these beautiful people wearing beautiful things in beautiful houses and beautiful cars. And, and it's not long before I'm thinking, you know, how much money am I going to have to shift around or guard or move to have more of that or less of this? And, and it's just what we do. It's just so easy. And it's normal. And look, money supplies the power to improve. And so, of course, we love it. And because it's the same for everyone, this, this issue, it just kind of flies beneath the radar, doesn't it? And hey, why can't I, as a Christian, why can't I take up my cross and follow Jesus and be financially comfortable as well? Like, why not? And especially if I can manage it, I mean, you know, why do we have to accept all the losses and the crosses that come with being a Christian? Especially if I can work out how to get around them. So maybe I can keep one foot in the church and I can put one foot out there in the world and maybe it's all going to be okay. But for centuries as we've been trying this as Christians, we all end up in the middle, in the water, don't we? Uh, Horatius Bonner, one old hymn writer, noticed this many many years ago he, he wrote this he said i looked for the church and i found it in the world and that's good that's where the church should be but then he said i looked for the world and i found it in the church and that's not so good and the boat's supposed to be in the water but the water's not supposed to be in the boat is this true also for us is this true for you on the subject of wealth, what we do with it? Has greed been normalised in your Christian walk? Just become the thing you do? Well, God knows our difficulty with this. Money is one of those things that is written about in the Bible more than just about anything else. He knows that we struggle to honour him with money. And what does he do? God does not condemn us. God does not condemn us. No, he offers his children more grace, more grace, more grace. Not only did he send his son Jesus to die, yes, for this sin too, he also gave us his spirit living in us so that we could hear his word, receive his instruction and gradually learn to put it into practice in our lives as he gives us more grace and patience along the way as we listen to him more. And listen less to the desires of our flesh. Listen less to that siren call from the world. Listen less to Satan's urgings not to trust God, but to trust what we can hold and gain for ourselves. And if we're ready to listen, well, that's the kind of instruction that we have here in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. So it says, Keep your lives free from the love of money, says the Lord, and be content with what you have because... God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So how do we do it? How do we do that now in the northern Illawarra in the 21st century? How do we put this into practice? Well, how do we... How do we guard, how do we change our paths? Maybe how do we guard our paths and priorities to make sure that we worship God acceptably with our wealth? It's a question we need to ask so that we can do better than before, perhaps. 
Well, let me give you a warning, first of all, one of the mistakes we can make with this. Uh, you might be familiar in history, we've learned this one over many centuries in history, you might be familiar with the ascetics of old who zealously embraced a vow of poverty. They said, look, money's bad, God says it's bad, so we're going to just, yep, yep, not, none of it. And so they would go out and live solo in the desert somewhere so they could be nowhere near any economic anything. And then when that didn't work, they got on poles in the desert so they could get even further away. And when they realised they needed some other people to help them, well, they started joining monasteries and putting together what the nuns and, and monks have done for centuries, a vow of poverty, let's live together, let's work this out. And while those places did a lot of good, a lot of good serving others, absolutely, and were definitely very effective in keeping physical money away from those who had taken this vow of poverty, still the problem was they couldn't actually deal with the heart. Because that's where the problem lies, it's the heart. Our hearts are the, are the real issue here. See, money itself is not the problem, and our passage makes that clear, doesn't it? There in your Bibles. It's the love of money. It's the pursuit of money that does the damage. And so please note, I'm not saying, and God in the Bible never says anywhere that money itself is evil. He doesn't say it's evil, and nor does he say the possession of money is evil. Not even close. God doesn't think that poverty is good and abundance is bad. In fact, it's the precise opposite. He thinks that poverty is bad, which is why he's bringing us to a heavenly home that's going to be full of abundance forevermore. It's his great promise. The wonderful thing about God's heavenly home is that our future is one that is chock full of abundance and no lack. Poverty in this life is one of the terrible bondages that God promises to free us from when Jesus returns to collect all his brothers and sisters and bring us into his father's house where nothing will be lacking. That's so good. And we note also in the Bible as we keep looking at it that the blessing of an abundant wealth brings significant power to do things even now. Significant power to do good. And that's what God calls us to do with, with money, with wealth. And so it's precisely what we find throughout the Bible. Yes, we find people doing the wrong thing, but we also find this incredible list of God-fearing men and women who use the wealth that God had given them for great gospel good. So go and check out Abraham and, and look at how he used his wealth and look at King David and look at even Cyrus the Persian. Look at Mary and Martha in the New Testament and Joseph of Arimathea. Look at Lydia. Look at Philemon. And in fact, we're told that Jesus' entire ministry, those three years and all those blokes walking around doing all that work they did, who funded it? It's this group of wealthy women who funded his entire ministry. Praise God for those women. Even the Macedonians, we're told, who were absolute abject poverty, gave generously and extravagantly when they had opportunity. And beyond Bible times, it continues. Second century, there's this letter that's there in history called a letter to a bloke called Diognetus, whoever he was. It, was, it writes about how strange and abnormal a Christian's behaved from everyone else at that time. This is what it said. Compared to all of them around, it reported that they were like this. They share their table with all, but not their bed. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are short of everything, 
yet have plenty of all things. And together, these early Christians and those from the Bible, they will show us how to worship God acceptably in how they handled money, such that even, well, the unbelieving world couldn't but take notice and commend even, and nothing bad to say about them because of how they handled money. And so for us then, as we think about that for us today, if we're blessed by the Lord with wealth, we'll praise him for it, but remember that if we're blessed by the Lord with wealth, then we're blessed for a reason. We're blessed for a reason. Not so that we might hoard it for ourselves, you know, my precious, and be like that landowner, that landowner that Jesus talked about who was poor towards God but was rich only towards himself. No, not like that, but instead to invest in gospel causes for the life and care and salvation of other people. We've already got it. He's given it to us and he gives us stuff we can give to others that they might have what we have. And, and this kind of generosity is one of the most wonderful things that I'm just so excited about when people ask, what's it like to be a minister in Bulleye? Wow, let me tell you about the people. Just over a year and a half we've been here now. Is it that long? March last year. And one of the most exciting and wonderful things that we've discovered and I've seen is, well, just how generous the people of this church are. It's amazing. Not only do we as a church financially support three of our own families on the mission field beyond here, but countless other good causes financially as well. For example, we had Sally here before us what, two weeks ago uh, to, you know, let's fundraise for Sally's Year 13 Fiji mission. She's got to raise $3,500 and she's 18 years old. And I'm thinking, oh, what chance has she got of this? Well, she asked you. That's what chance she had. Two weeks later, stop giving to her, please. Way over that limit now. It's beyond the three and a half. It's climbing. And this is because of generous people who love the Lord Jesus and want to give to good causes. It's wonderful. Now, sure, we might struggle to pay our own expenses as a church from time to time. But it seems to be because we're very good at recognizing problems elsewhere and giving immediately and urgently and generously and wonderfully. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. It's so good. And let's keep doing that because when we do that, this is, well, it's acceptable worship because we're actually even behaving like God. We're imitating the Lord who has everything and continues to give and give and give. And we're just being like our Heavenly Father when we do the same. Honours Him. It's acceptable worship. And that's why having money is not evil. That's why... Money itself is not evil. No, the danger is in the loving of it. The danger is in the hoarding of it or guarding it or pursuing it at the expense of God and his plan for us and the benefit of others, especially the benefit of those in the household of faith. So how is that possible? Why is it that we can manage to do this and how can we keep on doing it and not dry up somehow? Well... We find the answer in our passage here because it tells us what the opposite of the love of money is. Do you notice it? The opposite of coveting cash is contentment. That's the opposite of coveting and pursuing money and loving money. It's contentment. Contentment that's secured 
by the presence of God. What does he say here? Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Contentment in God is the life changer that enables Christians to be free, carefree with money. It's the contentment in God and, and knowing his presence is the thing that enables us to take a day off. Take a day off one in seven because you don't have to keep rushing out and working and working and working, slaving to possibly because you might lose if you don't. It's, it's what enables us to sleep carefree, restful sleep because we don't have to keep pursuing all the time what's going to protect us and save us. No, because we're trusting God. And so that's why contentment, as the Bible's talking about, it, it, it's not some kind of virtuous, minimalist utopia of forced denial. We're not doing that. We're not going minimalist denial. We're not doing that at all. No, contentment in God, well, it's more like what this author, Richard Svensson, wrote. And this is just such, he's put it so brilliantly. I had to show you. Contentment isn't denying our feelings of unhappiness. It's not denying it. It's a freedom from being controlled by those feelings. Contentment isn't pretending things are right when they're not, but rather it's the peace that comes from knowing that God is with me and is bigger than any problem and that he works them out for our good, even the problems he works out for our good. I heard another speaker on this, and this is just beautiful, declared that contentment flows from the worship of God. It flourishes among the people of God. It fights the enemy of God. And it feeds upon the word of God. And it's spot on right. Let, let's unpack that just a little bit. So that first one, contentment flows. It flows from our worship of God and all he is and all that he has done. God has sent his son. He is giving us an unshakable kingdom. It's right to be thankful it's right to so worship him with reverence and awe. And when we get our worship straight, worshipping God instead of money, well, contentment flows from that worship. It just comes from it. As we now have our eyes and our hearts set in the right place. And not just that, our contentment flourishes amongst the people of God together. This happens as we, we look to one another's needs. We hear about a need and let's give to that. And, let, and, and, and we, we use our resources to share and to care for one another. And in a setting of generous, mutual giving and generosity, well, it's easy to learn to be generous and to, well, keep spurring one another on. with As we keep outdoing one another in generosity, we just get more generous and contentment in this way flourishes amongst the people of God and the love of money is banished. And a really strong spiritual benefit to us, oh, contentment fights the enemy of God. Cast your mind back to Adam and Eve in the garden for a moment. If they had been content with what God had given them in the garden, well, they would have resisted that blasted snake. They didn't need another tree. They had a garden full. God's giving 
and us being content in what he supplies, it fights against Satan's temptations. And remembering that God's generosity in giving us his son for all time, well, that's the opposite of what Satan does when he speaks into our ears and he, well, he seeks to imprison us within the moment and within the fear of the moment. How much have I got now? And am I going to be okay for later? And is my super doing all right? And what's going on with my insurances? And, and he, he gets us to fear that we might lose and that God can't be trusted to secure us, so we've got to reach for something else. So let's reach for money because, hey, you can use that. And as we fear the moment, we get imprisoned within time. And we think we've got to control that moment. No wonder we don't sleep. But because of Jesus, we Christians can even be content in suffering. We can be content even as we face death because we have knowledge of what's to come. We don't have to hold on to this moment in every breath. And such contentment, therefore, frees us from Satan's binding hold over us in time and in wealth. And perhaps most importantly of all, for you and I, beyond this moment and what happens tomorrow is, well, how do we keep building this? Well, contentment feeds. It feeds upon the Word of God. And so what does the Word of God say? It tells us here, Hebrews 13.5, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because, here's the why, why we can do it, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Christians, his presence with us is our security. His presence. Don't be afraid. I am your helper, says the Lord. You are never alone. And this wonderful message echoes down through the ages to us. Someone's done a count on this and they found 365 times in the Bible when God says, never alone. That's one for every day of the year. Is that okay? It's not bad, is it? A snapshot of some of them. God said to Jacob as he was fleeing from Beth, he was fleeing through Bethel, fleeing his family, he was fleeing for his life. He had nothing. He lay down with his head on a rock for a pillow. That's how wealthy he was at the time. And what did God say? Never will I leave you. I am with you. I will not leave you. Genesis 28, 15. And then Moses, when he's sending the Israelites into the promised land, Deuteronomy 31, verse 6, he says, Be strong and and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, your enemies, because the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he didn't. And in they went. And David encouraged his son Solomon with the same words as he tried to take over this enormous kingdom that David had left for him. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord my God is with you, David said. 1 Chronicles 28.20. And Psalm 118.6-9, one, one of these famous moments, it goes over and over this. It says, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in people. The Lord lives forever. People don't. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than in princes because the Lord's more powerful than them. And how and why? Well, because his love endures forever. His love is what endures forever. And of course, Jesus in the Great Commission, if you're thinking 365 is not enough because it's an occasional leap year, well, don't worry because in the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? Surely I am with you always the very end of the age every moment 
of every day. Never will I leave you. Never will I sake you. And friends, there in God's presence lies our confidence. There in God's presence lies our security. There in God's presence lies our contentment. We are never alone. Never alone because of God. In fact, in, in this passage, the, the English is wonderful. At least we can read it. The Greek is just more powerful at this moment where it comes in there and it intensifies this never alone stuff to highlight its importance. And we can't quite capture that in the English. And of course, you can't read Greek, most of you. So you're just going to have to trust me on this. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you later. But an old 18th century hymn writer really captured this beautifully as if speaking from God's perspective, he wrote in old 18th century language. So cope with this if you can. He wrote, The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, repose is to rest. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavour to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Never, 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 never. We need to hear this, don't we? We need to hear it regularly. We need to encourage one another with these words. Not that I'm going to be with you. No, the Lord is with you and his love endures forever. He's the one who can supply. And we should be reminded of this so that we feed on God's word rather than feeding on the fears and the threats of the world around us that says you're abnormal and you should be more like us. They would have us worship their ways as opposed to worshipping God. And their voices are real and their voices are loud. Some of you get them every minute of every day in your workplace and at school abandon God and worship what I worship abandon your God worship what we worship so you're not different so you're not abnormal you might experience this personally I know I do but we also know someone else don't we and we have a, a word from the Lord if we're willing to hear it and remember it we know God and he is with us and we're not the first ones to hear this or learn this or know this or need to live on this. There's a famous story going way back to the 5th century. You all know John Chrysostom, don't you? Yeah, don't worry, neither did I. Uh, he, he was the Archbishop of Constantinople back in the Byzantine Empire. All right, Constantinople, we're talking. No, don't worry. Let's just go there. Uh, and when he faced persecution under the hands of Eudoxia and the Emperor Arcadius... And they brought him in to face charges and to bring him down. And she began with these words, threatening him with banishment, to banish him from that empire. And this is what he said. You cannot banish me for this world. It's my father's house, said John. But I will kill you, the emperor said. No, you cannot. For my life is hid with Christ in God. I'll take away your treasures, said Eudoxia. No, you cannot, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. But I'll drive you away from all your friends and you will have no one left. Eudoxia responded, no, you cannot, said John, for I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you, for there is nothing you can do 
to harm me. That's what confidence in God sounds like in the face of all that we fear. When we know the presence of God in our lives, contentment in him breeds that kind of confidence and it changes everything about us and the things that we would normally fear. And so then for us, rather than, rather than fearing and following the world in its greed, let's you and I keep our lives free from the love of money. Let's continue to keep it free from the love of money and let's be content with what we have. Let's trust the presence of God in our lives to breed that contentment that flows from the worship of God, that flourishes as we gather amongst the people of God, that fights the enemy of God and that feeds on the word of God. Because such a life of worship, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit to the glory of Christ, to the benefit of all his people as we do this together. And so then together, we can all say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Do you believe that? Can you say that? Well, I'm going to invite you to say it with me. You've got it there in your Bible. Bible's page 976, Hebrews 13, verse 6. It's also printed on the back of that outline that we've been, all those screens have been pointing at. I invite you to say it with me now. And so we can say with confidence, what can we say? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? And may the God of peace equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.